I don't want to seem closed-minded or judgmental, but in all good conscience, I simply cannot approve of the lifestyle. I personally believe that it's a choice and it's not something predestined or forced upon anyone by anyone. I understand that parental upbringing is undoubtedly a big factor and that some people believe that genes lead to a predisposition to this lifestyle. But I also know that adults are responsible for their behavior and the behaviors associated with this lifestyle are no exception. On the one hand, I believe that we live in a free country, but I also think that freedom has its limits. One limit being when others are hurt by this chosen lifestyle. And this lifestyle, there can be no mistake, is hurting a lot of people. Families are being torn apart. Churches and denominations too. Everybody, it seems, has an opinion on this controversial lifestyle. But I believe that God's opinion is the one that matters most, and there is absolutely no question what God's opinion is on this according to the Bible. This lifestyle and the behaviors associated with it are thoroughly condemned, especially by Jesus. He was very compassionate towards many groups of people, but there is one group of people that he has an absolute and uncompromising commitment to confront and expose, and it was those who dishonor themselves and others made in the image of God by engaging in this lifestyle. When people choose this lifestyle, they often cut themselves off from everyone who doesn't agree with them. They end up living in small, closed communities where only their own voices and views are heard, and anyone and everyone who disagrees with them are often mocked or condemned and often in strong language. They become incapable of speaking respectfully to or of those who, cannot, who they cannot in good conscience agree with. If you take a look this morning at countries where this lifestyle runs rampant, you'll get an idea of what our nation will be like if some of us do not have the courage to stand up, to speak up. Wherever this lifestyle spreads, a whole host of social problems follows in its wake. And the lifestyle that we're talking about this morning is the judgmental lifestyle. And it's exactly the lifestyle that Jesus is confronting in this passage that we have shared together as we journey our way through the gospel according to John. Because in our passage this morning, we see that the religious have picked their victim, and they have their stones of accusation piled up, and their Bible verses ready to quote, and it's into the midst of this that Jesus speaks. Now, if our reading this morning had come from the NIV as opposed to Eugene Peterson's paraphrase in the message, we would have seen that this story is often introduced with the words, the earliest and most reliable manuscripts and other ancient manuscripts do not include this story. In fact, if you read some of the commentators around this, you will discover that, most of the that this passage is missing from most of the early Greek manuscripts and from many of the manuscripts belonging to different language groups. None of the early church fathers who comment on the gospel according to John 
comment on this passage. So it would appear that there can be no real doubt that this was not an original part of John, which kind of makes it interesting as you're preaching your way through John, preaching on something that probably wasn't there in the first place. But we believe that there is something of value for us to learn from it this morning. And whether it was part of John or not, what you will discover as we have read it together is that it kind of jars with the style of John that we've seen up until this point. And some commentators suggest that this passage is more sort of in the style of Luke. But we must ask ourselves the question, why was this paragraph maybe not included in some of the manuscripts? Why a hesitation over this paragraph? Could it be due to its content? Because on the surface, at least, it seems to express a liberal attitude towards sexual sin on Jesus' part. But on the other hand, could it have been included here because the chapter that precedes it and the chapter that follows it majors on the theme of judgment? And could this passage be inserted to further illustrate the point and flow of the chapter? So let us delve right in and encounter the story for ourselves this morning. We read that Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, but early in the morning he went back to the temple and all the people came to him and he sat and taught him. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. They forced her to stand before the people and they said, Jesus, they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught having sexual relations with a man who is not her husband. The law of Moses commands that we stone to death every woman who does this. What do you say we do? And we see in Eugene Peterson's paraphrase that it goes on to say that they were asking Jesus this to try and trick him. They were asking Jesus this question so that they could bring some charge against him. Because as we have journeyed through John, we have seen time and time again that really Jesus is getting in the way of the religious. He's really starting to bug them. But what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus bends over and starts writing on the ground with his finger. When they continue to ask their question, he is raised up and said, anyone here who has never sinned can throw the first stone at her. And then he goes back. He goes back to writing in the ground. And those who heard Jesus begin to leave one by one. First, the older men and then the others. Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus raises up his eyes and once again asks, Woman, where are they? Has no one found you guilty? She answered, No one, sir. And then Jesus responds, I also don't judge you guilty. You may go now, but don't sin anymore. What we encounter this morning in these opening verses of John chapter 8 is a story of shame. It's a story of abuse, and it's a story of grace. 
Because as we encounter the story, we see that there is a circle that is formed around the woman. And she is standing in the very center of it. And the men, the religious leaders, Pharisees they're called, self-appointed custodians of conduct are, are surrounding her. But there's another man in the picture too. And he is in simple clothes and he's sitting on the ground and he's the only one looking at the face of the woman. Because when we come to this passage, we see that Jesus has been teaching, the woman has been cheating, and the Pharisees are out to stop both. Verse 4, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The accusation rings off courtyard walls. Caught in the act of of adultery. Those words alone are enough to make you blush. Doors slam open and covers are jerked back. In the act, in the arms, in the moment, in the embrace, caught, caught, caught. This man is not your husband. Put on some clothes because we know what to do with women like And in an instant, the woman finds herself yanked from private passion to public spectacle. Heads poke out of windows as as the posse pushes her through the streets. Dogs bark, neighbors turn, the city sees, and all she has to do is all she has is a thin robe around her shoulders to hide her nakedness. But nothing can hide her shame. Because from this moment on, from this very second, she will forever be known by the community as an adulteress. When she goes to the market, women will whisper. When she passes, heads will turn. And when her name is mentioned, people will remember. Because moral failure is so easy to recall, isn't it? But what we see in this story this morning is that the greater travesty goes unnoticed. What the the woman did was shameful, but what the Pharisees did is despicable. According to the law, adultery was punishable by death, but only if two people had witnessed the act. There had to be two eyewitnesses. Question. How likely are two eyewitnesses to be in a case of adultery? What are the chances of two people stumbling upon an early morning flurry of forbidden embrace? Unlikely. But if you do, odds are that it is not a coincidence. So maybe we could wonder this morning, how long did the men peer through the window before they barged in? How long did they lurk behind the curtain before they stepped out? And what of the man? Adultery requires two participants. What happened to him? Could it be that he simply just slipped out? The evidence leaves little doubt. This was a trap. She's been caught. But she will soon find out that she is not the catch, but rather only the bait. The law of Moses commands that we stone to death every woman who does this. What do you say we should do? Pretty cocky, this committee of high ethics. 
pretty proud of themselves, these agents of righteousness. This will be a moment that they will long remember because this will be the morning that they brought down the mighty Nazarene. And as for the woman, well, she is immaterial, merely a pawn in their game. Her future, unimportant. Her reputation, who cares if it's ruined? She is a necessary yet dispensable part of their plan. The woman stares at the ground. Her sweaty hair dangles, her tears drip hot with hurt. Her lips are tight and her jaw is clenched. She knows that she's been framed. No need to look up because she will find no kindness. She looks on as she sees the crowd gather their stones squeezed so tightly in their hands that fingertips turn white. She thinks of running. But to where? She could claim mistreatment. But to whom? She could deny the act, but she was caught. She could beg for mercy, but these men seem to be offering none. And the woman has nowhere to turn. Now, Jesus' reaction. What would you expect Jesus' reaction to be? Well, I sort of following on from how he's constantly been calling out the religious in John so far, you might expect him to stand up and sort of expose the hypocrisy. Or you might hope that he would snatch the woman by the hand in some sort of magical way, beam her back to Galilee with him to escape what seems to be inevitable, her death by stoning. But this isn't what happens either. Or maybe you might expect an angel to descend from heaven, or maybe that the earth would shake, but none of that. Once again, Jesus' move is more subtle, yet his message is unmistakable. What does Jesus do? He writes in the sand. He stoops down and he draws in the dirt. The same finger that engraved the commandments on Sinai's peak and seared the warning on Belshazzar's wall now scribbles on a courtyard floor. And as he writes, he speaks. Anyone here who has never sinned can throw the first stone. The young look to the old. The old look into their hearts and they are the first to drop their stones. And as they leave, the young who were so cocky with borrowed conviction do the same. And the only sound is the thud of rocks and the shuffle of feet. Jesus and the woman are left alone. With the jury gone, the courtroom becomes a judge's chamber, and the woman awaits her verdict. Surely a sermon is brewing here on Jesus' part. No doubt, maybe she thinks he's going to make me or demand that I apologize. But the judge doesn't speak. His head is down. Perhaps he's still writing in the sand because he seems surprised when he realizes that she is still there. Woman, where are they? Has no one judged you guilty? She answers, no one, sir. And then Jesus says, 
I also don't judge you guilty. You may go now, but don't sin any more. Philip Yancey, commenting in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, on this particular section of John, says, Johnny, it rattles me because by nature I identify more with the accusers than the accused. I deny far more than I confess, covering my sins under a blanket of respectability. I seldom, if ever, let myself get caught in a blatant public indiscretion. Yet, he continues, if we understand this story correctly, the woman caught in adultery is the one closest to the kingdom of heaven. In fact, he goes on, we can only advance in the kingdom if we become like that woman, trembling, humbled, without excuse, but open to the grace that only God can give. This morning, so often, it's so easy to look at others, to find their faults, to call out what we think they're doing wrong, whilst internally we are also just as messed up. We all have our habits. We all have those routines that we follow day after day that we know really just aren't godly. Yet, we'd rather point out the problems in other people because we have God all figured out and we know that he really doesn't like what they're doing. But he also doesn't like what we're doing. If we look this morning to the words of the Great Commission, we see that we're told to go out into the world and make disciples of all people. Not to debate all people. The Great Commission, and I don't mean that we shouldn't engage in argument there, what I'm saying in terms of that we shouldn't debate all people, is that God knows the person. We don't need to tell him all about them and what we think they're doing wrong. The Great Commission was never supposed to be an us versus them proposition. It was supposed to be an us for them calling. Jesus was out to change hearts before he changed minds. Because we see in our reading this morning that before he challenged the mind and lifestyle of the woman caught in adultery, he offered her forgiveness. Before he commanded her to go and sin no more, he issued her unconditional grace. Because for Jesus, grace precedes principle. So, this morning we come to this table where that grace is extended to us. Extended to us in all our feelings and failures. So we come to this table this morning as we are. Some days on top of the world, others barely getting by. Sometimes we come to this table feeling like a machine or a number. Sometimes we come fully tuned in to the song that God is playing in our lives. But it's in the bringing together of all the pieces that make us that our eyes this morning are opened to the good, to the bad, to the ugly, to the inspiring, and the gut-wrenching, 
and to the presence in all of life of the God who is with us, for us, and ahead of us. Have you ever wondered how God reacts when you fail? This morning, take comfort in the words that Jesus utters to the woman in our reading. I also don't judge you guilty. You may go now, but do not sin anymore. Read these words. Ponder these words. Drink from these words and stand below these words and let them wash over your soul. Or as we come to communion, better still, why don't you invite Christ on a journey with you back to those things that you just can't let go of? Let him stand beside you as you retell him the events of the darkest nights of your soul. And then listen. Listen carefully because he's speaking. I don't judge you guilty. But don't just listen. Watch and watch carefully because he's writing. He's leaving a message, not on the sand, but on a cross. Not with his hand, but with his blood. And his message has two words, not guilty. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you love us without ceasing. We thank you that nothing we do could make you love us more or less, but you love us unconditionally become because of who you are. So as we come to communion, may we remember your sacrifice for us. May we take our lives, may we reflect on the past days, weeks, months, and years. But may we hear you speak those words into our lives, not guilty. Thank you that your grace is not exhaustible. Thank you that your grace has depths that we can never understand. Thank you that your grace led to you suffering on a cross for us in our place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.